Welcome to Innovation Hub, I'm Kara Miller. Some time ago, in the middle of a war, one side got so annoyed with how things were going that they recalled a general, fired him, and exiled him. And this was in the middle of the war. And that, you could argue, is what real democracy looks like. When you did delegate power, you wanted to delegate it for maybe a year at most before you checked back in with the voters. And sometimes when the voters check back in, they are not happy, according to Garrett Jones, a professor of economics at George Mason University, who has some unorthodox views on democracy. When we talk about democracy, we're always serious people are always talking about it as a matter of degree, much less a matter of kind. Back for a minute to that war I was talking about before. The general who was exiled was a fellow named Thucydides, and he wrote a famous book about the war he had been in, the Peloponnesian War, which took place about 2,500 years ago. Joan says, look, if the Greeks could see our democracy now, they would think, what? That's not a democracy. They would look at us and say, you're letting people have power for six years? They can do whatever they want for literally years and years without having to face the voters? He says what we have is extremely far from what they call democracy because the ancient Greeks got very, very involved with individual policy decisions. Ordinary voters voted on all sorts of detailed policy all the time. They knew it was important for people to be able to afford to take time off and go vote. And so they actually paid people a fee to just sit around and show up. And so some people who were quite <laughs> poor would actually do that for a living. They would make sure they went to regular Democratic meetings just um, in part for the, uh, the daily salary you got, the equivalent of uh, what we might today we might think of as jury duty pay, but quite a bit more generous. But to be fair... If an American living today visited ancient Athens and took a look at their democracy, we'd think, what? That's not a democracy. Well, of course, women were totally excluded from their democracy, and slaves and many non-residents were kept out of the democracy as well. Um, those would be the biggest obvious ones. Who was excluded was much more important. Okay, so the Greeks included voters on a lot more policy details, but they excluded lots of people. We include a lot more people, but don't generally allow them to vote on individual rules and regulations that will affect them. Joan says the important point here is this. There is no real democracy, no perfect democracy, no democracy handbook that says members of the House of Representatives shall serve two years at a time or voters shall be allowed to vote on every single bill. Over time, different countries around the world have experimented with different versions and levels of democracy. Some experiments have worked out better than others. But, and you may want to hold on to your hat here, Garrett Jones says, in the U.S., we should consider the virtues of a little bit less democracy. He's the author of 10% Less Democracy, Why You Should Trust Elites a Little More and the Masses a Little Less. And he says he started to think hard about the problems with our particular take on democracy almost 20 years ago, when he had a chance to work in the Senate. He was an economic policy advisor and legislative aide to former Senator Orrin Hatch, a Republican from Utah. Jones loved working for Hatch, who happened to be genuinely good friends with the late Senator Ted Kennedy, a Democrat from Massachusetts. But the more Jones saw of Washington, the more he thought, this democracy does not seem to be working quite right. Maybe we need more experts in positions of power and fewer folks who are subject to the whims of the public. Jones says... He learned two things. First, if you're hoping for politicians to be brave, don't hope for much in an election year. 
Second, if you'd like your politicians to be braver, have fewer election years. I uh, was asked to take a year off from being a professor to come and work as an economic policy advisor. So I got to see some tax policy worked on. I got to see some things behind the scenes. I was never at the pinnacle of power, of course, as a, a staffer who'd been there for about a year. But I got to see how politicians behaved when they were getting close to an election versus when they were far from an election. And, you know, there's a certain term they use, especially on the Senate side, for when a senator is less than two years away from re-election. They call that being in cycle. And everyone knows that when a senator is in cycle, he or she is going to be voting a lot differently than usual. And people expect that and plan around it. So I encouraged grad students to work on this. Ultimately, I saw some great papers that have used this approach to see how do senators just vote when elections are drawing near. Right. One way to put it is that uh, JFK was right when he entitled his book Profiles in Courage. And there's one reason the old saying about his book is that there's a reason it was mm. so short, because political courage is quite <laughs> rare, Right. So politicians are a lot more likely to be brave when they're four to six years out from re-election. The problem is, is that what many of us will call political bravery, advocates of democracy would say, that's just ignoring the voters' will. It's interesting because I wonder if you think that the people who have elected people like, you know, Orrin Hatch or it doesn't matter who the person is, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders. Really, it does not matter the political persuasion of the person. Do you think that the voters believe that those politicians vote differently in the last two years of their senatorial cycle than in the first four? I think if you ask people, they wouldn't be surprised. They would say, yeah, I'm sure that they start pandering to the voters more yeah, okay. in some way or another. I don't think people are, would be struck by this in general principles. But when you start seeing the litany of facts, they're more likely to vote for free trade agreements when they're four years out from a re-election bid. Hillary Clinton, for instance, she voted for every free trade agreement in her first four years as a senator, and she voted against every free trade agreement her last two years as a senator. That's just the kind of thing that politicians do. I think people on Capitol Hill won't be surprised by that, and even normal voters won't. Well, I mean, you argue in some ways politicians do have an expertise and there is it's in a specific field, which is getting reelected. Like that's their expertise. I mean, that's what their job's about. That really is their job is getting reelected. And they are very good at it in the United States, right? I mean, reelection rates are very high for members in both houses, right? People in the House, of course, are running every two years. I mean, famously, <laughs> we always describe them as essentially always running for reelection. Some folks have safe seats. But probably a third of them don't. And they're, they're always thinking about how will this vote be used against me on social media in a couple of months. Well, then you get to the fact that this leads to some really strange and kind of discouraging incentives. So let's say, you know, you've got a senator and they can either uh, you write about this. They can either investigate like top secret intelligence failures which is, that's so important. Um, but the problem is it's top secret intelligence. So they can't really talk about what they've been doing because that would be telling you the intelligence and they're not allowed to do that. Or they could do some showy thing in their district, you know, building some building or whatever. And I mean, the incentive system is set up that like, oh, well, you know, we mishandled super important classified intelligence. But, but what I should really do is what people can see. Yeah, Mayhew's book, Congress, the Electoral Connection, is a classic, still gets a sign, made this point back in the 70s. And senators who work on the Intelligence Committee, especially retired senators, complain about this all the time. Slade Gorton complained about this. He was on the Intelligence Committee. He says, we can't get people to work on this stuff. And he wasn't too blunt, I don't think, about why that was. But it's pretty obvious. Politicians want to do things they can brag about credibly. 
Politicians know that voters are skeptical. And so the clearest way to show that you've done something is to actually say, here's the contract. I mean, this is part of the reason for the $1,400 checks in the um, stimulus package that's just been recently passed. It's not that the median American is far worse off financially than a year ago. Many people are, far, are worse off, but not the average American. It's that you know you're getting the $1,400 check. Politicians say they do a lot of things, but checks that show up in your mailbox, that's something you can see. Yeah. So, okay, so you have this experience in Congress. At what point did you think, maybe a little less, like, this seems problematic. Maybe a little less democracy is what we need here. Well, that's the thing is that it wasn't just my time as a senator aide that taught me this. This is something that monetary economists, which is the field I was trained in in econ, we know this from looking at the battle against inflation that's been fought around the world over the last few decades and just the battle for good central banking policy. Being a central banker means doing a lot of things that involve taking very unpleasant medicine in the short run that yields payoffs in the long run. And it turns out that what our chalkboard theories tell us turn out to be true in fact, which is that countries that have more politically independent central banks, central banks that are kept away from the voters uh, a little bit more, tend to get a free lunch. They get lower inflation and they maybe get even more stable economic growth. So both my experience on the Hill, my experience as an economist, both pointed in the same direction, which is just a little more distance seems to be high payoff, pretty low cost, and still importantly retains the best parts of democracy, which is giving the voters to in some way say, there's something really wrong going on here and we want to punish the government. So democracy is a tool to discipline the government rather than to run it on a day-to-day basis. Can, can you give an example of maybe uh, a country that uh, does have a pretty independent central bank and a country that doesn't and how that can work out? Like basically, is it why it works out to have like technocrats running a central bank and not, you know, the people like people who are elected or or um, very subject to the whims of politics? Yeah, the, the classic example for both um, would be New Zealand. So New Zealand back in the 70s and 80s had very high inflation and had a weak economic growth record. And as part of a big set of political reforms, the government of New Zealand decided to make their central bank totally independent of the elected politicians and just said, hey, make sure you get inflation low and stable. And within a couple of years, inflation was low and stable there, and it stayed that way ever since. So we're talking about the very same country just before and after one big political reform. So, and part of the reason why there that uh, independent central banks seem to be sort of a free lunch is that politicians are always tempted in the short run to just say, hey, here's some cheaper money. Hey, yeah. here's some uh, low interest rate loans to favored businesses. Here's low interest rate loans for home buyers. It's very politically popular to rent out money for very cheap. And that yields big payoffs in the short run. But in the longer run, you get higher inflation. And our best estimate is that it doesn't even help your economic growth on average. There's a a scholar, Alan Blinder, an economist, um, who worked at the Clinton administration. He'd also worked at the Federal Reserve. And he basically came out of those experiences saying, like, Basically, the White House is not as effective in thinking through things in a logical way as the folks at the Federal Reserve because everything is about politics all the time. Um, What is there to be done about that when you think about something like tax policy or like these very complicated economic issues? So, you know, Blinder's approach where, you know, he took his experience working at the Federal Reserve and working in the White House and said, I think the Fed approach can be used 
in a few more parts of government. And his reform that I think really deserves attention is the idea of having something like a national tax board that would be a lot like the Federal Reserve, where you have elected politicians do the things that they're best at, which is decide on the values that we embrace, decide on the broad parameters of a piece of legislation, like the top tax rate or what percentage of all federal taxes should be paid for by the rich, things like that, and then let a bunch of experts, and in his case, he thought maybe it should be a bunch of economists and accountants and lawyers, have 10 to 14-year terms, like at the Fed, long terms, to work out the details of tax policy. They would mostly leave it alone, but they might make big reforms every five or six years. So have politicians stick to their strength, which is learning the values of the voters and passing those on to experts who maintain the sort of nuts and bolts details. So basically, you have a situation now where um, you have like the Federal Reserve saying, here's what we should do with interest rates. But then with something very also very complicated, like tax policy, you have basically amateurs writing it, which is to say politicians. People don't really know much about economics. Yeah. I mean, these committees, the you know, Senate Finance Committee, House Ways and Means Committee, they do have smart people working on this, right? But ultimately, each of these things, each of these bills on tax issues has to face a floor vote. And just imagine how interest rate policy would be run if we were routinely having Congress vote on interest rate changes and special lending programs to get us through the financial crisis. It's good that we've been able to have the Federal Reserve act early and quickly and boldly to help businesses. And these folks are working all the time. They can make a decision in minutes, hours at most through conference calls. Getting Congress to work that quickly is not going to happen anytime soon. If your argument is, look, you and I, well, you, uh, we, we'll just say I, <laughs> I don't know anything about the tax code. And so I really should not be like if you're you know, relying on me to elect somebody to like fix the tax code. Forget it. That you're just not going to end up uh, with the smartest decisions. It's the, the same is true about healthcare policy, which is super complicated. The same is true in some ways about gun legislation. There's so many things. So when you talk about 10% less democracy, wouldn't 20 or 30 or 40% be better? Because to be frank, the average person I just think about myself, I don't know much about any policy that comes before Congress. Well, I think the right answer is that we should notice that we already are nowhere close to 100% pure democracy. Do I want to call it 60% or 70%? Whatever number I pick, it's going to be a lot less than 100. So when I'm talking about 10%, I mean, that's compared to where we are now. We can move a lot more toward 100% or we can move a little bit away from where we are right now. Um, but either way, nobody's talking about moving to zero or moving to 100. Both of those would be bad solutions. So we're not at 100. We're never going to be there. And indeed, it's important to notice nobody's calling for that. What does 100 look like? J just to like do the thought experiment that nobody's calling for, what does that look like? I think we should think about it in terms of the technology we have in front of us, right? With smartphones that, we ha that are widely accessible and even you know less sophisticated phones that are accessible to many more people, we could easily be voting on routine government decisions all the time. Every single House vote could just be turned into a national plebiscite, right? We could really be doing this. We could have like terms be much Like you and I could short. be voting on everything that came before the House. Like why have an elected person do it for us? We could do it. Exactly. I mean, we know okay. they're not reading the bills, right? They're just listening to their friends <laughs> or they're right. reading blogs to decide how to vote on these things, right? Or they're listening to leadership. 
listening to their suggestions on how to vote, we can do the same thing, right? So when it comes to the raw mechanics of voting, or even who are you gonna listen to when you're not an expert, these are problems that our legislatures are messing up right now. So why not let the citizens mess it up themselves? Let's hold it there for a second. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Garrett Jones. He's the author of 10% Less Democracy. He's professor of economics at George Mason University. When we come back, a look at what is and what isn't anti-democratic, starting with the new voting law in Georgia that has garnered so much attention. From GBH Radio and PRX, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Welcome back to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. On March 25th, 2021, a controversial bill was signed into law. And so we are looking at a profound and important democratic moment in our country. Um, I dare say anti-democratic moment in our country. That's Sherilyn Eiffel, the president of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, speaking on MSNBC the day that Georgia Governor Brian Kemp put his signature to Senate Bill 202. The law would, among other things, decrease the number of voter drop boxes in Georgia, increase ID requirements, and allow the state to exercise power over local elections. It has demonstrated what I feared would happen after January 6th. The head has been cut off of the hydra, and now each of the states who are engaged in voter suppression will enact their own legislation. We're seeing this happen around the country. Uh, But this Georgia legislation is so embarrassingly uh, anti-democratic. Well, this is a reminder that democracies bring us many bad outcomes. Uh, Democracies have voted for many bad policies over the years. This is one. Garrett Jones is a professor of economics at the Center for the Study of Public Choice at George Mason University. He opposes the law in Georgia, which many corporations have spoken out against. And Jones agrees with Eiffel that it's a troubling move away from democracy that, in his words, is evil. But Jones argues that democracy is not a panacea, and there are lots of places where bowing to the whims of voters is something we do too much. He's the author, most recently, of the book 10% Less Democracy, Why You Should Trust Elites a Little More and the Masses a Little Less. And amidst the uproar over the Georgia law, which looks to be only one of several such laws across a number of states, it's worth considering that even if you think of it as anti-democratic, it's also kind of democracy in action. Democratically elected politicians using the levers of democracy to do what they think will appeal to their voters. Democracy often faces, especially majority democracy, majoritarian democracy, faces this tension between democratic rule and egalitarian rule. And equal access to the ballot box, equal justice under the law, that has something in common with majority rule, but they are nowhere close to the same thing. And I think keeping our eye on what creates something more like equal justice under the law should be our real goal here. Sometimes majority-driven democracy will be a big aid to that. And as we're seeing the last few months, majority-driven democracy can be a real enemy of that. Consider school desegregation, interracial marriage, same-sex marriage, 
If all of those issues had been put on state ballots and nothing changed until a majority of folks in a given state approved of the change, well, American history would likely have looked very different. The fact that the people saying schools would be desegregated, people of different races would be allowed to marry, same-sex couples would also be allowed to marry. Well, the fact that Supreme Court justices making those decisions had lifetime appointments and were answerable by that time to zero voters, it mattered. Garrett Jones saw the power of elections to influence politicians firsthand, working as an economic advisor in the Senate, where he noticed senators' courage in the first four years of their terms and the considerable absence of that courage during the last two years of their terms. And that's the Senate, where people are elected for six years. In the House, where you only serve for two years, the election cycle essentially never ends. And that argues, Jones says, for a reinvention of our democracy that's just ever so slightly less democratic. Moving the House away from two-year terms to four- or six-year terms would be a huge step by itself. Maybe that would be all you need to do. Have a few more government agencies that work like the Federal Reserve and like the federal judiciary. I hope that in 2021 and 2022, we start seriously considering turning the Food and Drug Administration and the Centers for Disease Control into true independent agencies led by panels, people with 10-year terms, and independent funding streams. So they can make their own decisions without having to worry about how the president and Congress are going to oversee everything. I think independent agencies and longer terms are the most relevant for the U.S. today. The founders, like the ancient Greeks, were really worried that politicians would be out of touch with the voters if they were away from their home states too long. I think in the 21st century, A, uh, social media is keeping politicians a much closer tie with their voters just naturally. And a little distance could go a long way, I think, in reducing the political temperature in Washington. Um, Another area that you talk about as being a good candidate for a little less democracy is um, the arena of judges. Why should there be less democracy when it comes to judges? Well, there, I think there's, we want justice to be blind. And one way to keep justice blind is to keep them away from the voters. Um, Voters often really are saying, reward me now, reward my team now. And there's the raw political effect of trying to please voters then there's also just, of course, the campaign donations, pandering, prospect of soft corruption effect that happens when politicians are up for re-election every two years, the kind of, or up, up for re-election on regular terms. So there seems to be some evidence that independent judges who can hold their terms for a long time are associated across countries with better growth, and they're associated even within the U.S. and just behaving in a more neutral way between their voters and people from, say, other states. You have um, a great quote from Richard Neely, who used to be on the West Virginia Supreme Court of Appeals, uh, the highest court in West Virginia. And this is the quote. As long as I'm allowed to redistribute wealth from out-of-state companies to injured in-state plaintiffs, I shall continue to do so. Not only is my sleep enhanced when I give someone else's money away, but so is my job security, because the in-state plaintiffs, their families, and their friends will reelect me. That is a very blunt assessment of, you know, how he got his job. That's one of Richard Neely's great strengths. He should be definitely be read more often in American colleges and universities. Yes, uh, judges are politicians in robes in many ways, right? And so if they're up for re-election all the time, they're going to act like politicians. And if we want them to act 
in a neutral way toward in-state versus out-of-state plaintiffs. We'll do a better job of that if uh, they don't have to face re-election every couple of years. I wonder if you um, think about the impact of this line of thinking at all on the Supreme Court, because in many ways, the Supreme Court, like in some ways it's democratic, but in some ways it's not really democratic um, on a number of levels, whether it's, you know, the legalization of interracial marriage across the country or or saying like here are gun policies, you know, these this is like a group of a few people saying, here's the plan. Okay, everybody, you may not agree with it. I mean, they did not put interracial marriage to a vote. You know, the famous case is Loving versus versus Virginia. Virginia, Yeah, they didn't put it to a vote or they didn't put the gun policies that we have now to a vote. They just said, here they are. Go forth. Roe versus Wade, a decision I'm very glad was made, uh, was made in a completely oligarchical manner by any measure. Right. That's oligarchy right there. And there are many other decisions we've had on marriage equality, as you mentioned, both interracial marriage equality, Mm -hmm. gender driven marriage equality, all imposed by an oligarchy. And thank goodness for that. And do you do you think that the way we've set the Supreme Court, I mean, you're talking about this this way we should deal with lower level judges. It should change is the way we deal with the highest level judges. Is that right? Is that correct where we are with that? It's within the ballpark of correct, I'd say, yes. And especially, of course, because we have this big Democratic check where if you want to and if the voters are upset enough, they really can increase the size of the Supreme Court. The uh, founding fathers and the Constitution didn't place any limit on the number of Supreme Court justices. So there's always some way for democracy to have its revenge if it so wills it. And if you were to, uh, coming back to the beginning, if you were to push, if you were to say, you know, Here's what here's the kind of dial backs in democracy that I think would be good, would be positive, would yield good things for the U.S. Here are my recommendations at the top of your list would be Um, longer terms and a few more federal agencies led by people who have very long terms and don't have to speak to the voters anytime soon. Do you think if uh, we had a politician in this conversation and we could talk to them and uh, let's assume they had truth serum also do you think that they would recognize what you're saying about how they sort of contort themselves um, in a certain way, especially when Election Day is coming up and not they don't necessarily like vote what they really think? Yes. I mean, we, we heard leaking over the last four years about how many Republican senators really didn't like Donald Trump and would rather have him not be president. But when it came time, especially with the second impeachment vote, the Republican politicians who voted to impeach the second time were the ones who didn't have much to fear from the voters. Uh-huh. Two who were retiring, a few more who were up for re-election in four or six years, and then a person who was his own politician, uh, Mitt Romney. And who I think was at the beginning of his term, right? He wasn't about to run for re-election. Uh, no, he's, he's, and he's in a pretty safe state anyway. Plus, he already knows he has his paragraph in the history books. <laughs> Um, give me a sense of um, the pushback that you've gotten, if you've gotten any, from writing a book called 10% Less Democracy. Well, it really tends to come from people who just hear the title, right? Um, okay. You know, I gave a campus talk a few years ago when I was getting the book together, and um, a student reporter wrote an excellent article, totally accurate about my talk. Uh, but once it got picked up on social media, um, as you would imagine, some distortions accumulated online. And... Uh, That was my first wave of hate speech, and it was all about people who thought that I was trying to take away their power to control government. 
It's the only time I've gotten a call from campus police. No real trouble, of course, but uh, okay. thank goodness. But yeah, so it's people who go off the title and who associate democracy with good government. And some level of democracy is absolutely crucial for good government. There's never been a famine in a democracy. But some distance between the voters and government also seems to be good for government. And that's really the heart of my story is that all countries today that call themselves democracies are some kind of mixture of democracy and oligarchy. And there's very little case for 10% more democracy. And there's at least reasonable case based on real world experience, not just some professor's philosophy, that 10% less democracy would have really high benefits and really low costs. Garrett Jones is Associate Professor of Economics at George Mason University. He's the author of 10% Less Democracy, Why You Should Trust Elites a Little More and the Masses a Little Less. Garrett, thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much. If you want to hear our whole conversation and the case for rethinking America with just a touch less democracy, you can find it on Apple Podcasts, where you can hear our segments every week. From GBH Radio and PRX, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. <laughs>